I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book three, The Truth About Stacy. Dun, dun, dun. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, do you guys have your one-sentence summaries ready to go of this Indeed. beautiful little book? All right. Um, Emily, what's yours? Okay, my one-sentence one summary of The Truth About Stacy is... Corporately structured babysitting agency threatens livelihood of small business, undercutting the babysitter's club by selling their labor at a lower rate. <laughs> wow. And, and lower quality, question mark? <laughs> oh, very nice. Very nice. Mine starts the same way, but goes a, a different direction, mm. which is uh, unscrupulous babysitter's agency and 1980s Dr. Oz figure threatens stability of 12-year-old girl with type 1 diabetes. Nice. <laughs> Mine's a lot more straightforward. <laughs> Mine is, we learn about Stacey's pre-Stony Brook life in New York City her diabetes backstory, and her fortunate affinity for white chocolate. (laughs) It's true. It's fair. It's fair. Yeah. Thanks, Anne. Uh, (laughs) Wait, you guys, we should probably tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. I'm Anne Chikala. A freelance writer, a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. Um, If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. You guys, do you know what day it is? It's July 2nd, which means the Netflix Babysitter's Club show premieres tomorrow. Is it a coincidence that it falls on a holiday weekend? Because maybe they should turn July 3rd into National BSC Day. We'll be watching the entire series tomorrow morning and releasing a Netflix series analysis bonus show next week. So stay tuned. So let's get back to the truth about Stacey for today. And what'd you think of the book? Well, on um, this reread of the truth about Stacey, probably my first time reading this book since 1987. I don't know. Was that when this book came out? I would assume 86. It came out in 86, but you definitely read it for a few years after that. I I would say maybe 91 is the last time you read this book. <laughs> Generously, maybe, maybe, maybe junior year of high school. Yeah. yeah. So I'm surprised that I, I don't remember liking Stacy so much when I was a kid. Like I was very much a, a Claudia Kishi girl for obvious reasons, me being Japanese and liking candy. Um, but as an adult, I feel like I'm like, wow, Stacey is a really cool kid. Like she's super confident. She's, you know, very self-assured. Like Uh I feel like she has a lot of emotional maturity, um, and Uh self-awareness and, you know, it's like this kid has diabetes and that's the truth about her and how is she going to deal with that? 
Yeah, I agree. And I really like how Anna Martin portrays her in this book. Um, I continue to think that she's got, they've got a really different voice compared to Claudia and Christy. So um, I know there's been a lot of criticism over the years of the writing in the books, but I, I feel like it's pretty good so far. Um, and it's, I'm convinced that Stacy's a different girl from Claudia or from Christy. Um, and I really liked her perspective in a lot of different places. Wait a second. Someone has criticized the writing. <laughs> Just one a single person. <laughs> yeah, just a person. There's ever. Yeah, I went down a little bit of a Babysitter's Club uh, internet hole last night. and I found a New York Times Magazine article from 1992 talking about how, you know, are our series books bad for children? And it was, it was fairly balanced. There are plenty of people saying, no, they're not. Um, but it was a little bit, there were a few choice criticisms we'll link to it of Anna Martin's writing not not being up to snuff um but she was like very interviewed for the story and very like sweetly non-defensive and like I write how I think these girls would talk and you know very matter of fact about it but there was a, it's interesting that you said you didn't like Stacy as much or you didn't remember liking Stacy as much because this referenced a poll that Scholastic did in the late 80s early 90s and Stacy was the favorite babysitter <laughs> so I don't know what do you guys think well, I also don't remember liking Stacey that much as a kid, except for the fact that all three of us ended up living in New York City. I think probably <laughs> no right? thanks and no small part and thanks to Stacy. Absolutely. Way. Absolutely. <laughs> I think you're totally right on that. I wonder if, you know, none of us is a Stacy, right? Like she's not and she doesn't even really I mean, I was good at math, but other than that, I didn't really have anything in common with Stacy. Um, so, oh, right. She's like a treasure. I, I was like, have we learned that about her? Oh, yeah. <laughs> she likes yeah, we have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I didn't identify with her, but I did always like her. And she reminded me a lot. Well, Anne and I had a, another friend, Michelle, um, who <laughs> was, was the Stacy in our group. And I, oh. you know, Stacy shares a characteristic with our friend Michelle in that she was like a cool girl who's still really nice. Um, and I liked that. And I, you don't usually see that in books. Like Stacy's cool. Like she's like Pete Black is into her. She dresses well, she's sophisticated, she's pretty, but she's also like willing to wear a freaking sandwich board. She got her period. Yeah. She has her period. Yes. According to this podcast, <laughs> canon. But she's willing to wear a sandwich board for Christy. You know, she's her dedication to the club and to her friends is, um, even though some of them are like babyish and weird, um, is is really admirable to me. And so I like that she lived in those two worlds, which I think is realistic. I think a lot of girls are like that, but don't get painted that way in pop culture. I liked how matter-of-factly she dealt with her crush on Sam. She's sort of like, yeah, I mean, I have a crush on him, but he's old and like this other boy who I can actually talk to also likes me and he's cute. Like I might as well have a crush on this dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I also picked up on how Stacy is a lot more um, practical when it comes to her, her boy, her boy situation. Like Claudia's very much daydreamy with like Trevor Sanborn. He has a very romantic name. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like Emily says, Stacey's very practical. She's just kind of like, and it seems like she's able to um, remove her focus on boys when she has enough stuff going on in her own life. Or like at the end of the book, when she's like running or like on her bike, 
and she sees Sam and she like doesn't even care. She's just like, oh yeah, like whatever. Hi. Like she forgets about her crush. She just seems to put a lot more emphasis on boys than than maybe Claudia does. Mm-hmm. You mean less emphasis on boys? Less emphasis on boys, yes. I also wonder if that's just because Stacy doesn't have ADHD. You know, if Cla- if we're going with that hypothesis from last week, Claudia like can't move her attention because Trevor's the most interesting thing, whereas Stacy can prioritize a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or Claudia has a way of finding Trevor at the end of every you know train of thought, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's like, no, I'm on I'm on this path right now. Nothing can take me to Pete Black or to Sam Thomas. <laughs> But bringing it back to Stacy, I found it interesting how um, when the babysitter's agency is formed and there's this competition, that she seems to really side with Christy. Like, uh-huh. she's very much with Christy. She's just like, no, we got to fight them. Like, we're not backing down. Whereas Claudia and Marianne are much more like, ugh, like, really? Like, do we have to do that? Like, ugh. Whereas Stacy's really into the sandwich board. What does uh-huh. the sandwich board say? <laughs> Well, there's a couple. One of them says younger is better, which I thought was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was not the best. I was picturing poor Marianne having to wear that. I know. With her braids and her... They make fun of her... Stacy makes fun of her reading glasses, which I think is funny. (laughs) Does she make fun of them or she just mentions them and you interpreted it as her making fun of them? Well, she mentions them as a sort of moment where that's a, meant to elicit like sympathy uh, <laughs> you know like, like oh she could put on her, with her yeah, reading glasses put on her <laughs> reading glasses before she could even read the the competition flyer you know <laughs> she's like <laughs> and that comes on the heels of stacy conceding that there is a bit of a split between the her and claudia mm-hmm. you know social echelon and the christy and marianne babyish right <laughs> although We'll talk about this more in tallies. Stacy never calls them babyish. Um, that's all Claudia. Yeah. The initial sandwich boards say join the best club around, and then on the back it says the babysitters club. <laughs> I just want podcast listeners, both Emily and Anne made like the equivalent of the straight face, like non-expression emoji when I read that out loud. It's not the best advertising. No. But you know. Um, so back to Stacy. And her diabetes. Mm-hmm. It's the whole reason she moved to Stony Brook, pretty much. Right. And I'm really wondering how realistic that scenario is for, like, all of us having lived in Manhattan, it's like, like, leaving, like, leaving Manhattan go to Brooklyn is hard enough. It's, like, and there, they're like, her daughter has diabetes. There can't possibly be good doctors in New York City. <laughs> So we have to move to Stony Brook and get away from this hubbub and this all this all this bad negative like energy for Stacy so she can so she can heal from this, which does not seem realistic. You also have to remember though that this is New York in the mid eighties. This isn't the New York that we all lived in in the early 2000s to now. Um, So, you know, my husband's from the Bronx. It was like quite dangerous then in a lot of ways in a lot of places. And so I could see, especially if they're feeling overprotective, like they have to circle the wagons. Also, no, no white upper middle class family is moving to Brooklyn in the mid 80s. 
This is true. That was a. It was not the Brooklyn of now. So I think that um, it actually does make sense that suburban dream of like let's slow down and let's have all of the nice things and like a little quiet small town existence. You know, we're talking about the middle of the Reagan era. I mean, I don't know, Emily. What do you think economically? It seems like that would have been prized by Stacey's parents in this situation. Well, the weird thing about Stacey's parents to me is less so their kind of, you know, social class aspirations and their weirdness around Stacey's illness that like they, that they don't tell people seems to me a really strange thing. And that like the thing that they're ostensibly removing her from is not, um, like an environmental situation that relates to her health her diabetes health, but it's like a situation they created that like is affecting her mental health in a, in a sense. And so it's like what they're rescuing her from to them in their minds versus like what they're actually rescuing her from. There seems to be a little bit of a gap there for me. And I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, we could talk about what kind of parents Stacey's parents are, but I was like, I think they're making some really questionable choices for their kid in general. And that's, that's a fair point, Emily. I guess I, you know, so part of my professional job is to empathize with parents, um, in, in sticky situations where other people may be judging them and thinking they're, they're making really bad decisions. Um, and so I can kind of get where Stacy's parents went here. The decision to not disclose that it was diabetes once they figured it out is a little bit funny to me. I'm not sure what that's about because this isn't like, you know, it's not like it was HIV in 1985 or something, you know, like I I would understand it if it was, a you know, but type 1 diabetes was pretty well understood at that time. Um, But the rest of it, I think, they're just scared. And I think Stacy has a pretty nuanced understanding of it in her, in her backstory chapter in chapter two, where she talks about her parents' infertility and their, their fear that they almost lost her. And so now they're kind of tripling down on keeping her safe. And we see that a lot with, um, and you know, I've worked with kids with chronic illness, with diabetes and with other chronic illnesses. And that's a pretty common thing where the parents get super overprotective because they have so, um, they're, they're so aware of how close they were to potentially losing their kid when they didn't know what was going on. And you also have to, this is only a year at, into her illness, basically, right? Like all of this started when she was in late fifth, early sixth grade. So they're still adjusting. This isn't a family that's known what was going on for a long time. I don't know. I sort of understood it. I'm only the only parent on this call. I have a cat. <laughs> I guess maybe the gap for me is that Stacy seems so mature about her grasp of like how that move affected her and like how the secrecy around her disease made it harder for her to like feel comfortable living with it. But like they don't. I, so maybe that's a, just a way in which Anna Martin is writing her maturity level up a little bit in order to make an argument about, you know, like trusting kids with their own mm-hmm. medical stuff or whatever. But I was like, it seems funny to me that a 12 year old would have a more clarity on that than the parents. Mm-hmm. But I guess that that like fear you're talking about might be a really powerful sort of like clouder of judgment or something. Absolutely. And you have to keep in mind back to the overarching theme of the books. You know, Stacy's 12. It's in between. And there's this really big developmental transition that parents have to go through when they have a kid to then when they have a teenager. And the parents are also on a developmental trajectory you know, along with Stacy. So Stacy's figuring out like boys and where she fits in and if she's more mature and all of those things. And the parents are figuring out, you know, 
if she was eight, everything that they're doing would make complete sense, right? And if she was 16, it would be clear that she's older and she needs to take care of things. And it gets really confusing right there in the middle. And so that's the other, you know, it's hard, I think, it's hard for any parents to transition from childhood to adolescence with their oldest kid or their only kid in this case. And then that's sort of um, compounded when your kid has a chronic illness. So I think the urge to keep her kind of small and closely monitored is probably really high. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also, I feel like you said, diabetes is a pretty well studied and you can, you know, treat it very easily in a certain way. Um, So maybe diabetes wasn't the best illness for like Anna Martin to pick for Stacey's parents to overreact in this way. But then I was also thinking, well, I was reading this, what, what, what illness or disease would be better than diabetes for like, you know, like fourth graders to read and I couldn't mm-hmm. really come up with anything like that. Was like, yeah. You know, like, okay. Like that's like something that seems maybe kind of scary for a 10 year old to read. Absolutely. It's also not necessarily like it's not a death sentence by any means it's something that's completely treatable so yeah. I, i'm sure that and also anna martin on her dedication is her she's dedicated to a doctor uh-huh. for this book and i actually googled her but i couldn't find anything uh. <laughs> yeah she did her research um and she, you know so far all the child development child psychology stuff is like perfectly on point and i'm sure she did her research for um for the diabetes stuff. You know, I read one other, I, 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 now I have to find where I found these things, but I read one other blog post somewhere about how um, lots of people interpret Stacy's struggles with diabetes as a stand-in for the AIDS crisis, actually, because these books were coming out in the mid to late 80s and Anna Martin was living in New York and she was, now we know she was gay. That was just, she was not out at the time. And so she wanted to like potentially talk about chronic illness that was relevant to a child, but um, also talk about this larger societal thing. That might be a little bit of a stretch, but it's an interesting idea. <laughs> yeah, I guess I wonder too when the sort of stigma around type two diabetes emerges, like as a sort of cultural form of shaming around healthy living and that kind of stuff like that's after this right oh yeah that's a great question I don't think I had heard of type 2 well but I was also a child but I don't remember hearing about it when we were kids do you Anne no and it's like linked with poverty and stuff like that um I feel like that's a conversation that happens way later so like there's a little bit of a way in which that doesn't quite work as a example of the sort of social stigma around HIV uh-huh. um, in the 80s, but maybe it works a little later. Uh-huh. But then yeah. Stacy's not the paradigmatic case of like where social stigma runs up against health, if right. that makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the doctors, her parents. <laughs> I have some things to say. Yeah. Okay. And I think when, when she was, when uh, her parents were taking me to a holistic doctor, and Stacy's like, holy? Taking like, me to a <laughs> Of a faith healer? Yeah. I yeah. like that she knows what a faith healer is, but yeah. not what a holistic doctor is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was fantastic. Um, 
I yeah, I love this whole subplot. So so background for our listeners, uh, I'm a psychologist that uses what's called empirically supported treatments. There are many things that have been studied for major mental health problems. And if you need therapy, please ask your provider what the data is behind their methods and they should tell you. Um, and unfortunately, this is very uncommon. Um, and it's also sometimes uncommon with doctors. And we see some great examples here. Um, I, I You know, before we even get to the fat doctors. I love that Stacy's mom's first move was to take her to a psychiatrist after she wet the bed. That was mentioned very early in the book. And that was like very New York City to me. Um, I'm surprised it wasn't a psychoanalyst, but I, I really liked that particular bit. But I also, you know, this is how people fall into the throes of non-evidence-based practice, whether it's in regular medicine or in psychology and psychiatry, is this desperation and fear that the McGills are feeling, right? So they want to figure out what's best and they want to know how they can help Stacy the most. And so when people make extraordinary claims, people are attracted to it. So I wasn't surprised that they wanted to look into Dr. Barnes. I love that Stacy at 12 is like, Uncle Eric saw him on television and that's why you're taking me to him. Like, I love that she's already incredulous. I think that feeds back into her character, as you mentioned at the beginning, Anne, of just her being like on top of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder if it would be the equivalent now of like, would Christy's parents, I mean, sorry, Stacy's parents, would they have taken to her like, I don't know, like an acupuncturist or like a crystal healer. <laughs> uh, there's so many options. There's so many yeah. options. Unfortunately, yeah. this stuff is proliferating because the more we have, you know, we have fewer checks on facts on our like spread out media. So, yeah, there's lots of wellness possibilities. They probably have our own CBD, too. Um, <laughs> which well, that again, diabetes, right? Well, but I really, and I also really appreciated how both Dr. Johansson and so, so actually, Emily, could you back up and just kind of remind people, we're talking about a lot of different doctors here. Could you give us an overview of kind of which doctors are which? Yeah. Okay. So Dr. Johansson is a babysitting charges mom, Charlotte Johansson, um, who's like one of Stacy's favorite kids to babysit. And we, there's some interesting kind of like politics with Charlotte and her class that she's like smart and she gets teased. She doesn't have any friends. And this plays into like the, the rivalry with the babysitters, um, corporation. What's it Agency. called? <laughs> Agency. <laughs> babysitters Incorporated. Conglomerate. Conglomerate. Uh, LLC. Um, and then Dr. Barnes is the, the holistic doctor who's going to recommend a bunch of really expensive treatments that won't actually do anything. Stacy anticipates this and Dr. Johansson agrees. Stacy solicits Dr. Dr. Johansson's advice during a babysitting chapter, one of our inter babysitting interludes that we love so much. And then, oh, I forgot her old doctor's name. Dr. Werner is her Dr. like Werner legitimate is her diabetes doctor. Yeah. In New York city. Mm-hmm. And then she also has a doctor in Connecticut. Right. Who's also fine. But that that doctor doesn't factor very much into this book. And then there's a new doctor at the end. Dr. That Graham. Is, that is vetted by Dr. Johansson, who helps Stacy convince her parents that she doesn't need to continue on with Dr. Barnes. Woo, so many doctors. I know. I know. So um, I feel like we for, for the listeners, we should like give them like a... Uh, 
additional, yeah, additional adjectives like Dr. Babysitter Johansson, like, like Dr. Mom, uh, you know, Dr. Kooky Barnes, like (laughs) Dr. Respected Black Dr. Graham. They mentioned that he's black. That's the only character that's been mentioned as described as black so far. Right. Which means that everybody except Claudia is white. Wait, there is someone in uh, book two, one of her, Claudia's friends is Rick Chow. Oh yeah, that's true. Just going to throw that out. Yeah. Um, So so Stacey asks Dr. Johansson to help her get an appointment with someone who will be impressive and have lots of fancy diplomas on the wall to Mm -hmm. convince her parents that maybe she doesn't need to keep going to lots of doctors. And so Dr. Johansson like pulls some strings and hooks her up with Dr. Graham, who sounds like a big diabetes expert. And she surprises her parents. So I I have an idea. Yeah. I think, you know, so Stacy's parents had her go see a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's time to do a little role playing. (sighs) Okay. Set us up, Anne. Well, Esme, you're going to play the psychiatrist. Okay. Can I be a psychologist instead? No. But that's not in the book. (laughs) Fine. And then, Emily, do you want to be Stacy? I think you should be Stacy. Okay. Um, am I am I being a good ethical psychiatrist or am I being a, a realistic psychiatrist in New York City in 1985? Actually, we shouldn't do that because then I wouldn't say anything. Ooh, <laughs> damn. That's fire. I would just have you lie on a couch and I would be silent. So I'll be I'll be a good psychiatrist. Go ahead. Okay. Do they knock before they come to the office? I mean, there'd probably be a waiting room, but we can, we can pretend I'm all by myself. Okay. Hang on. I'm going to try it. Okay. Wait, is this an initial consultation? Um, well, I feel like I want to play true to the book. So I feel that oh, Stacey... Oh, so I'm going to be the good psychiatrist at the beginning who realizes that Stacy has diabetes? Oh, there's two psychiatrists. There's one psychiatrist at the beginning. So Mrs. McGill takes Stacy because she's bedwetting. And then he realizes that she's thirsty all the time and watches her drink a bunch of sodas. And he's like, uh, she has diabetes. Take her to a primary care physician. But Dr. Barnes was going to refer her to a psychiatrist. But they get out of that because of Dr. Graham's wise counsel. So do you want me to be that hypothetical psychiatrist? Yes. What are we doing here? <laughs> okay. Stacy, what brings you here today? Um, my parents wanted me to come. Oh, that's pretty typical when people are 12. What, what are they concerned? Do you have any concerns? Um, no. Okay. What are your parents concerned about? Uh, I have diabetes. Okay. Um, is that causing any emotional problems? Yes, it is. My parents are really driving me crazy. They're so overprotective and I can take care of myself. Okay. Tell me, tell me about how you take care of yourself. Well, I, I, I I monitor my, my insulin and my blood, my blood sugars. I Mm -hmm. monitor my diet. Um, you know, I keep pretty healthy. I walk a lot. Um, the one thing that's really been bothering me is that, I, you know, it seems my friendships are suffering because of this. Oh, how come? Because my, my best friend Lane's a bitch. <laughs> what did she do that was bitchy? Well, I had a, you know, I slept over at her place one night, as we usually do. And I, we shared a bed and I peed in it. And oh. she got really mad at me. This is before you were diagnosed? Yeah. That must have been really embarrassing. I mean, was it? <laughs> You're 12 and you peed in a bed. Yes. I don't know. She's pretty... You know what? Stacey's confident. She's owning this bed wedding. And I'd do it again. <laughs> I'd do it again. Anyway, whatever. 
<laughs> My diagnosis is overprotective parents. Go see Dr. Graham. He'll set them straight. He'll set them straight. Can I get some Ritalin or something? <laughs> no. <laughs> what, to give to, to give to give to Claudia? Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. I have one last psychology thing that I want to talk about. Well, actually I have two, but one feeds into Emily's stuff pretty well, I think. So one is just, I really, and this is short, but I really loved how she portrayed Christie's emotions with the whole confrontation. So they, they, they ask these two older girls to join the club out of desperation to try to, um, fix their situation with the babysitter's agency. And the, and what do those girls do, Emily? They don't show up to jobs which is pretty yeah. fucked up. Yeah. They screw them on purpose. So they take two jobs with new clients and they don't show. And then there's a meeting where those clients call to complain and to let the babysitters know. And it's this very heartbreaking thing to me where Christy's like, I'm the president. I'll speak to them. And they get on the phone with her. And then she immediately gets off the phone and starts to cry. And Stacy notes, like, I've never seen Christy cry before. And there's a couple different places where the business is really threatened and to me, I thought Anna Martin really skillfully rendered this kind of like complex anger crying that was going on for Christy because she was like mad that Janet and Leslie, these eighth graders had done this to them. I think she was more mad at herself because she's the one that asked them to join. And so I think she's like filled with shame that she like did this to her own club. And then she's just like sad and scared that it's all going to fall apart. Um, and I thought it was just a really lovely piece of writing and an accurate way of that all of us, not just 12 year olds can get overwhelmed with complex emotions and stressful times. So I don't know if that part stood out to you guys that was in chapter 10, or if you were just like, yeah, whatever, cry, baby Christy. Well, no, I think it's actually interesting in this yes. sort of... <laughs> cry, baby Christy. Cry, Christy. Deserve it. <laughs> no. Um, I do think it's interesting, though, because there is, like... Anne noted earlier how there's sort of two modes of response to this threat agency that um, Claudia and Marianne kind of want to scale back their response. And I think there's some, something kind of interesting in like their reasoning. And then Stacy and Christy have like different motivations for kind of upscaling the response and that Christy's like reflecting on her, the mistake that she made there is I think really important and interesting. And Stacy's cause even Stacy at the point when, when Christy lets the girls join their club before they properly vetted them, even Stacy's like, Ooh, maybe that wasn't the right move. Right. And then Christy mm -hmm. sort of like owns that. Like I was the one who said yes. So like mm -hmm. I take responsibility for this and like that. Um, I think that's an interesting kind of yeah. way in which actually Claudia and Marianne are sort of validated. They're mm -hmm. like their reasons for not wanting to scale up become valid. And like the ultimate resolution sort of proves them right, which I think is um, another interesting dynamic of kind of what's going on here in terms of like labor. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which, you know, Christy shows some uh, character consistency very soon into the book because going back to book one, where she is really mean to Watson, but then immediately writes that apology note. Mm -hmm. Like she's very quick to realize her mistakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the last thing that was like an undercurrent in the book that I did that I did not like so much um, was this sort of us versus them mentality of like what 
kinds of girls and are you good kids or bad kids? Um, and it shows up really early on page 11 where um, Claudia's talking about Liz and Michelle who start the babysitter's agency. And she's like, you know, they're those kind of girls. They like snap their gum and talk back to teachers. And I bet they're not very good babysitters. Um, and so this kind of judgment of like, who's a good kid and who's a bad kid and what does that mean um, is kind of a undercurrent through the book culminating in this like classic after school special uh, face off chapter in chapter 13 where it's like, do you know what Jamie Newton's favorite sandwich is? Um, they like, you know, sort of stare down the babysitter's agency for not being as, as good as they are in, and like good with a capital G it's not just about babysitting. Right. Um, it's like a moral, uh, judgment. And I was curious to see like how that came across to you guys. Yeah, it's a little icky. <laughs> could could you say more, Emily? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's pretty um, true that everyone who chews gum is a bad person, <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 I guess. I guess it's wrong? true. I guess it's true. I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting to to juxtapose that configuration of the conflict between the two groups against like the structure of labor one right that like the book kind of renders the babysitting agency as this like genuinely problematically corporate structure right these two girls are providing uh, an interface between the supply of labor and the consumer of it but they're just extracting a profit out of it they're not you know doing they're not there's not an equal exchange mm-hmm. Their rate isn't based on uh, exchange value. It's based on they're taking home surplus value made off of the labor of their mm-hmm. workers, essentially. It's like and a so really like, early Uber. Yeah, <laughs> a really early Uber. <laughs> um, so their their workers are you know contingent. They have no guarantee or role in no health insurance for their work. No health insurance. They don't even get to take home their full rates, like all of these things. But they do it in exchange for the kind of like convenience, right? They don't have to do all the work of setting up their own thing. And so um, they're also able to offer lower rates because of this than the babysitters club. And so there's like, so in that way of parsing out the conflict between the club and the agency, like the girls in the agency are these kind of like boss managerial class that are bad. They're exploiting both. They're exploiting their workers and they're not providing a kind of quality um, product. But Uh I, but that moral judgment that gets rendered on them that links to like what kind of girls they are doesn't match the sort of critique of like that practice of a certain form of capitalism. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. And I think it's interesting to see how the girls respond to that formation because right, Christy and Christy's like, we got to meet them at the market level, right? We got to mm-hmm. make our metrics meet theirs so that people can justify sort of continuing to consume what we're producing. And then the uh, Claudia and Marianne are like, we can't sacrifice our values, right? Like we're, we're providing something that's more than just like putting a price tag on it. Like we're not cleaning their home, right? We're not going to exploit ourselves further just to like keep business and, um, clients. Right. Claudia even says it's degrading. It's degrading. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of interesting 
paired with the more like adolescent conflict over like who's a good mm-hmm. kid or not, who's going to grow up to be a, a good person. Yeah. And I, I don't want to, I think that is a common way to see the world. I think, I mean, I certainly remember dividing kids up that way in my head. Not that I said that to other people, but I remember like, those are, you know, those are good kids and those are not so good kids. Like, yeah. and, I know what you're you know. talking about. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I think it would have been interesting if yeah. what made them not good kids was their model of organizing their business only, not like, mm-hmm. not like mapping all that other stuff onto them. And even at yeah. the end, Stacey, like when they quickly change to, you know, makeover consultants, Stacey's sort of like, wow, they're actually quite smart. They're going to be good. Mm-hmm. Not good, yeah. capital G good, but good. Right. Like they'll be, they'll gonna, they're going to be successful. And so right. you get to like sidestep kind of their like exploitative tendencies with uh, like a commentary on their industriousness in general. And somehow that like that, that like rescues them from the way that they had like their former mode of exploitation and their like failure to deliver like a product, right. Of babysitters that are good and careful and that care about kids and all these kinds of things. So they get let off the hook. Right. But is there a, Yeah, well, they're let off the hook, sort of. But I wonder about, like, is that a critique of, you know, people that want, like, do you think Anna Martin has, like, a secret agenda here about, like, capital, like, compassionate capitalism versus this sort of ruthlessness identified by Liz Lewis and Michelle Patterson? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that how quickly the ruthless hierarchical capitalist structure crumbles is unrealistic <laughs> in, in Unfortunately. the 80s in the U.S. and especially today. Um, <laughs> but I do think she's trying to carve out a space for something that's like smaller scale, compassionate capitalism, blah, blah, blah. The scale at which or the criteria by which the families come around to see the value of the club as opposed to the agency would mm-hmm. be nice if those were those were things that consumers were thinking about all the time right that like what who is packaging us the things that we're buying who's selling them to us well that's what your generation is supposed to be doing right yeah don't (laughs) buy amazon (laughs) (laughs) but i also think she is trying i think i was thinking back to our conversation last time about like how we value care work and like under what conditions it's possible and how the monetary value of care work against the emotional value of care work sort of stack up. And I feel like in this book more, we're seeing the girls operate with like a broader sense of success that isn't just a traditionally capitalist one, right? That they have Uh this, they like, they're actually developing an ethic of caring that is like about connect connection, right? That like the kids, they find out that the other babysitters are bad because the kids are sad, right? The kids Uh think babysitters aren't fun anymore. They're, um, all they want to do is watch TV. They burn cigarette holes in the cushions (laughs) and the girls are like, wait, you know, like we would like, what's the point of babysitting if you're not gonna spend time with the kids and connect with them? And they're, you know, one of the moments between Charlotte and Stacy is Charlotte's like, well, would you even be here if my mom wasn't paying you? And Stacy was like, yeah, of course I would. Like if your mm-hmm. parents told me they needed me to babysit you and they couldn't afford it, I would come right away. And like, I invited you to a party that I didn't get paid to invite you there. Like, and so they have this in this book, I think more so than so we've seen so far, they have like a, a, something else that's motivating their measure of like what, what counts as being successful. That's not just the, mm-hmm. like, is absolutely successful monetarily measure. Yeah. I wonder if like this, this like storyline of what you're mentioning, Emily, is 
like uh, what Anna Martin was going through when she was writing this book, because she probably had some issues with maybe the, you know, the term selling out or maybe trying to like point in her life, becoming a more serious novelist or something. And now she's like writing this series of books for, you know, for like scholastic, but maybe this is also her way of like expressing her, that whatever quote unquote good side of her. And not being so capitalist is like telling stories like this through mm-hmm. her books. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like there was definitely probably some sort of inner turmoil for her to take on, like, as they would call this in, you know, like a money project or like a right. money, a money job, you know? And it's obviously something that was really good mm-hmm. and has endured, you know, generations. But I'm sure for her, it's like, how old was she when she wrote these books? Like, in her early 30s yeah yeah she was probably like not a successful writer up until that point and she was probably like oh, I, I need to make money or like yeah. I need to you know be successful was it only Bummer Summer that came out before this I think she had maybe one or two books before mm-hmm. the BSC took off and she's had you know Newbery winners yeah. since then but at the time in that in that um in that article I read, she sort of says in 1992, she's like, I mean, I haven't won a Newberry, like sort of self-deprecatingly. <laughs> right. So I do, it's, it's interesting to think about the time in which she wrote it and what, because, you know, everything a writer writes has to do a little bit about her own life or their life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She had two, just Bummer Summer and Inside Out were published before mm-hmm. the Babysitter's Club. Missing Sense Monday came out the same year. Oh, I loved that book. Oh my goodness. Oh, it's about um, that girl Maggie and her sister Courtney gets kidnapped and she has to like try to find her. It's like, so it's, it's very intense. Anyway, back to the BSC. Well, it's just interesting because it's just like adult life, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, whatever Michelle and Liz are obviously like super rich now <laughs> and real, like right. if they were like real people, Christy and might be Yeah. They're the, they're like yeah. union busting corporate yeah. owners. Yeah. They have, they have summer homes and I'm sitting on the floor in my closet making a podcast about the babysitters club for free. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. yeah, no, totally. So it definitely is. It's like, you know, I definitely having been work, having worked for a lot of large corporations, it's definitely like that. And it's also why I am freelance now because I was going to say, do you think that Anna Martin is like a big influence on why Gen X people are like underemployed and (laughs) in like go into like social work and English and other things like that? Definitely Anna Martin and not not neoliberalism. Yeah, what if somehow she like planted this idea in my head when I was like when I was ten? Yeah. Like this fight against the man. Well, I think too the like the way they talk about the money issue between the two, the club and the agency is really interesting because they're like, okay, you get to take all the money you earn with us, but like we all contribute dues and equally kind of decide on how those get, how those, you know, get doled out, but also we have equal weight and decision about how everything is done. So it's like this more worker owned kind of cooperative model. And then, Mm -hmm. but their criticism, like the way that they criticize the other one is not like, doesn't really rely on that sort of joint 
leadership bit. It's just the like, you get to take all of your money home from all the jobs. So there's a kind of like way in which they don't even recognize that the, the, di- the true difference of those different structures, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like the, the, like how much money you get to take home in your pocket still is kind of like the bottom line defense of like why this is a better, right. better option. And then yeah. like, you're also your bad babysitter. So you're not going to get business in the end. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I do think that the wrench about like what age parents would prefer the kids to watch their kids to be it's kind of difficult too because it's like you know we joked about the the younger is better sandwich board but the girls really do have to make a case for why they're more responsible that isn't that doesn't rely on this kind of just understood yeah. heuristic of age as a measure of responsibility right like just because you're 15 doesn't mean you're going to be more responsible than a 12 year old yeah. necessarily. Absolutely. We, we haven't talked about sort of the climactic scene where they're walking home and they find Jamie Newton at three years old in front of his house on the strip right next to the street in freezing cold weather with no hat and gloves when Kathy Morris is supposed to be babysitting for him. Hi. Um, drama high drama i really i love to hear your take on there's a couple scenes in this book that i remember very vividly from childhood and that um i still think are rendered really well and that's one of them and the lane and stacy making up in the movie theater lobby is the other one but i'd love to hear how you guys felt about sort of what what they do next and how they resolve that situation like in the book they resolve it yeah sort of like like when they go to all the parents or they like go to their parents and ask if, what should we do? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that was pretty realistic. Um, so basically, after they see Jamie Newton, you know, out in the cold by the street, um, all the babysitters agreed to kind of consult their parents on what was the best thing to do next. But mm-hmm. um, just like it shows, I thought that's interesting because it shows their age, like, like how, as you've mentioned, they're like transitioning between child and like young adult, basically. So they're kind of stuck in that role, but they still look to their parents as Mm -hmm. like their measure of, you know, you know, moral, you know, like what's the right thing to do. Um, My parents know best. And how do I untangle this complex problem? Because I don't, I like how, they're so focused on like, we don't want to seem like poor sports and we don't want to seem like we're just complaining about the agency because they're an economic threat to us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas like as a parent, I'm not going to think that at all. I'm going to think like, you saw my three-year-old in the street. Thank you. You know, Um, but that they don't have that perspective. And so I think it's very sweetly rendered. Yeah, it was was also like, I mean, the more I read these books, you know, whatever, when I'm as a, as a 40 something year old, it's, I'm like, man, like I was not this like complex as, at their age or like, I feel like, <laughs> or maybe I was, but I didn't have, like, I would have never been like, uh, fought against a rival babysitting club or like, I would, I would never have taken it that far or I would have never have put so much thought into how do we resolve this issue? Like, I feel like a lot of the books, are about how do we resolve something and mm-hmm. like, how do we do that in a way that is like, quote unquote, like good, that like, or like the good way to do something. Mm-hmm. The right way to do something. Yeah, yeah. Right I thought it was 
interesting that Stacy didn't give her parents details, but Christy was like, oh, I told my mom the whole story. Like, and I wonder whether that's supposed to be demonstrative of their like different levels of development or Mm -hmm. whether that's like has something to do with Stacy's kind of rocky relationship with her parents or. It's because Christy hasn't had her period yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Once you get your period, you get real cagey, Emily. You'll see. You'll see someday. Someday. (laughs) Maybe in my (laughs) forties. All right. And what, what kind of candy do we have in this book? Not much. Mm. I mean, Stacey has diabetes, so, you know. <laughs> but uh, basically, lifesavers. Again, with the lifesavers. And butterscotch discs. What's a butterscotch disc? Yeah, you know, like a hard candy. The, those, like, light yellow butterscotches. Mm. Like a it's like a shape, like No, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like the shape of a starlight mint, but it's like a yellowy butterscotch. I don't know what a starlight mint is. Okay. I, I wish everyone could see their faces. You both just made it. Describe them for the podcast audience. Oh, um, you you both leaned into the camera and like with a, an angry head tilt and like a what shake it was very good. All right, and just in case there's like one other person listening who doesn't know what a starlight mint is, do you want to tell Emily and that one other person that grew up under a rock? Yeah, it's the mint you get when you leave restaurants. It's free. That's wrapped in a little piece of plastic cellophane. That's that's it's like a peppermint stick, but it's a disc, and it has little like red swirlies around the edges. That's called a starlight mint. Yes, they have green ones too. Yeah, um, those are yeah, those are spearmint, which aren't as good. You want the peppermint? Great. Thanks. All right. So tallies for this book, Stacy to go with her um, increased maturity is less judgmental than Claudia. So um, she does call Marianne shy twice and she does call herself sophisticated once, um, but she doesn't dog on Christy. Um, she does not exoticize Claudia and she doesn't call anybody babyish. So um, that brings our totals for the series. So far, Christy's only been called bossy once. I feel like that increases exponentially later on, but we'll see. Stacy sophisticated for Marianne shy six and Claudia exotic one. So we'll see where that goes. Okay. Weirdest slash favorite lines of the book. So mine wasn't necessarily like so much a line as it was a mention, but I really liked it when uh, Christy was pretending to be a parent needing a baby or like she was pretending to be someone else. Needing a babysitter. For her, her little brother. Sibling. Yeah. For her, yeah. And they were like, oh, okay. And she said she was she had a date. And I guess the other person said, who was she going on a date with? And she said Winston Churchill. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So good. I don't that know. I good. just thought that was really, really funny and like so random and very ghosty. Yeah. yeah, totally. So Winston Churchill is my favorite. Okay, mind. fair enough. Um, I thought it was super weird that Marianne specifically kept referring to their conflict with the babysitter's agency as like a war (laughs) and talking about like battles as opposed Mm -hmm. to whatever. And then at the end when they're like essentially pizza toasting their triumph, she says, we won the battle and the war (laughs) as a follow-up to Christie's declaration that we beat them because we're good babysitters. Yeah. (laughs) Which I thought was absurd. Yeah, fair enough. I had two. One was in that same chapter at the end. 
Uh, Stacy says she feels like cheering, and she literally says, "Rah rah rah, sis boom ba, something something, the Babysitters Club." It's <laughs> 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 just like super awkward. And I was like, Stacy, really? I just yeah. it, it didn't. It was unbecoming of her. Um, and then also another Stacy line on page one hundred six when they're having their confrontation with Liz and Michelle, and she calls them dirty business women, <laughs> which I really like yeah. too. I feel like in all the scenes where they're like in a fight or like talking about the other agency, there's like a lot of weird insults thrown around, but they're not really insults. They're just like, like stale, like canned responses. Yeah. And there's another line I liked on um, page 10 when Claudia says, those two aren't babysitters any more than I'm the queen of France. Yes. <laughs> that is also like, really good. Like, um, that doesn't seem like something Claudia would say. And also, I feel like seeing that she isn't a great student, she wouldn't understand that line. I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of things going on. Okay, what's our favorite? I kind of like dirty businesswomen. Yeah, I think it's a good encapsulation. Yeah, I of the, good. yeah. I agree. Excellent. Okay. So are we, okay, so you want a pizza toast? What are you pizza yeah. toasting to? Oh, wait, I also just wanted to mention, since I didn't clarify this in the very beginning with my one sentence summary about the white chocolate. <laughs> this this is really important, listeners. We have to come back around to this. Go ahead, Anne. Is that when Stacy is babysitting Charlotte Johansson, they go, they walk to a candy store, Polly's candy store. Polly's fine candy. Fine candy. Yeah, fine candy. And Stacy's having this like inner monologue of how easy it would be just to eat candy. And she like, she fills two quarters in her pocket. She's like, that's more than enough for two pieces of candy. And then she like fixates on this white chocolate. <laughs> like what? It's not, white chocolate's not even chocolate. I don't understand. I just remember being a kid and being very confused by that because I don't like white chocolate. I don't either. There's so much other candy to choose from. Why is like white chocolate supposed to seem sophisticated? Because it's not like regular yeah. chocolate. And yeah. like, you know? I understand that it's fundamentally bad and that people like to hate on it nowadays, but I don't, I don't have a problem with white chocolate. But if I couldn't have candy ever and I just wanted one thing, I wouldn't choose white chocolate either. Agreed. What would be the candy? If you were diabetic. And you were going to cheat? And you were going to cheat, what candy would it be? Airheads. Watermelon Airheads. Or Chewy Sweet Tarts. Chewy Sweet Tarts? Shit, yeah. Incorrect. That was an incorrect opinion. <laughs> so good. Well, Emily was insulted by Chewy Sweet Tarts, by the way, listeners. Simply insulted. <laughs> what's, your, what's, your, what's your choice? I mean, if I really am not ever having candy, I think I'm going to go for, like, Sour Patch Kids. And you dog on me for chewy sweet tarts. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the low I can see Anne's face. That's the low rent version of a chewy sweet tart no, on airhead. False. What do you false. Sour Patch Kids? They're just very right. similar. Yeah, they're just and very classes similar. join up a little. No, I know they're very similar. Sweet tarts are so much better than the chewy ones. Mm-hmm. Like they're I like the texture. Category. I like no. the texture. Okay, Anne. Well, I was thinking I would get like a box. Of C's candy, but no. But then one just be really candy. one piece of candy. You can't do um, a whole box of C's. That's not a like, that's a cheat day for someone without diabetes. Well, normally I would go for chocolate, but if I was diabetic, I'd go for like a giant pixie stick. <laughs> 
I feel like we're losing like at least 50% of our listeners with these candy choices we just made. So many people are going to be insulted and want to know why we didn't choose like a, an excellent, like artisanal piece of dark chocolate. But, you know, we're from Sacramento, you guys. We are who we are. And from Visalia and Three Rivers. It's all Central Valley. We like the fruity candy. We're, we, we don't have to apologize for it. I like sour. All right. What are we, what are we pizza toasting to? We could pizza toast to Dr. Graham. Mm-hmm. We could pizza toast to Winston Churchill for helping the Babysitter's Club win the battle and the war. <laughs> we haven't even talked about this, but we did mention we could pizza toast also to Kid Kits. Oh, let's pizza toast to Kid Kits. The one good thing that came out of this battle. Absolutely. Yes, the origin of the Kid Kit. Beautiful. Hey, pizza toast to Kid Kits. To, to Kid Kids. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on iTunes, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for. 